0: Boston is not, of course, a neutral backdrop for a story about religion or about change. Despite its liberal image, over the past 100 years, the city has been notorious for mounting stubborn resistance to change. Admittedly, Boston is a specific case, but perhaps also a finer lens through which to view a complex process of religious change. The dailiness of church life in late 19th century Boston demonstrates, on the one hand, the innovative possibilities of religion in a large city, and on the other, the limited options for change. Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Bakerty Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars. And what I just read at the top were words from the book Fundamentalists in the City, Conflict and Division in Boston's Churches, 1885 to 1950, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2005. And I am so pleased to have its author, Margaret Bendroth, with me in studio to talk about the religious environment of Boston in the 1870s 1880s and 1890s with a look at what that would have meant for someone like Mary Baker Eddy, entering into that geographical and mental space, coming into it with a new spiritual message that was both well-received and heartily rebuffed. So welcome, Peggy. Thank you. It's great to have you. So Peggy, just a little bit about you before we get started. You are executive director of the Congregational Library and Archives in Boston. I mentioned your book, uh, Fundamentalists in the City, Conflict and Division in Boston's Churches, 1885 to 1950, but uh, that's not your only work. You have many uh, publications to your name. Uh, And two of the most recent are uh, The Last Puritans, Mainline Protestants, and the Power of the Past, which was published in 2015 and the Spiritual Practice of Remembering. And that was published in 2013. It's really wonderful for us to have you here and to have you uh, in Boston. It's it's been wonderful. We've made some visits to your institution, and it's a a wonderful place and a very deep archive. And so uh, as an institution that treasures its archive, we have an enormous amount of respect and love for what you've done at the Congregational Library and archives. So Peggy, I'd like to open up by asking you to give us a sense of what the religious atmosphere of Boston was like in this period of the 1870s, 80s, and 1890s, when Christian science was first taking root in Boston. What were the big issues that were circulating in the, in the mind and the consciousness and the temperament of the city at that point?
1: It, it just strikes me how parallel it is to today, because I, I would name three issues. The first is immigration, mm-hmm. Roman Catholic immigration. Right. So by 1885, 39% of Boston's population was native-born. All the rest were first- and second-generation immigrants, and of course, most of them Irish and being Irish, Roman, Catholic. So that's not as high a percentage as a lot of other cities at the time. You know, Milwaukee, Chicago, uh, upwards of 90% could have been immigrants or, you know, first or second generation. But in Boston, because, and we'll probably talk about this a lot, it's physically small. Right. Um, the Catholic parishes were some of the most ethnically homogeneous in the nation. They were very visible. Irish Catholics are also, in 1880s, 1885 actually, starting to gain visible political power. They elected... Uh, Hugh O'Brien is the first Irish uh, Catholic mayor, an Irishman of what they called the better sort, Mm -hmm. um, but uh, an Irishman nonetheless. So immigration was—people were concerned about the pace of immigration, whether these people were going to assimilate or whether they take over. Um, The second thing that they worried about was liberals, Mm -hmm. okay? So there was intellectually at that time— Uh, what they call the New Theology. And so this is a whole systematic theology that was actually really centered um, for a time in Andover Seminary, which was up in Andover Mass and heavily influential in the city of Boston. Um, This being theologians who wanted to somehow uh, reconcile what they were discovering about the Bible's historicity and uh, about science and to make Protestant theology Kind of more relevant and more uh, to social issues, more ethical. So, of course, there are some very prominent liberals in the city, George Gordon at the Old South Church, uh, Phillips Brooks. I guess you could say um, at Trinity Church, and so they're in some ways riding high in the Mm -hmm. 1880s because this is an era of great cultural institution building, the public library, uh, Harvard Medical School, MIT, you know, all these are in Copley Square um, at Mm -hmm. the time. So the third group is evangelicals. and I want to just talk about them for a minute because when we use the word today, it's, you know, all kinds of polarizing meanings. It had none of that in the 19th century. It's something similar but A lot of time, a lot of water has gone over the dam since then. So I just want to kind of talk about who these people were. Of course, evangelicals are native white Protestants to a large degree. There weren't many African Americans in Boston at the time. And they are, I think you could say, starting to feel beleaguered. Mm -hmm. They are in pitched battles with Roman Catholics over who controls the public schools, whether, you know, the Irish immigrants were going to go to public schools or have their own. And then they're also very, I guess you could say, moralistic, concerned about moral issues. And the one issue that I say consumed, and that's probably the wrong word, but it's alcohol. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, like every city in the late 19th century, immigrants and alcohol and vice and all these things were kind of rolled up together. The evangelicals are also really convinced that drunkenness was the root of most social evils, Mm. you know, domestic violence, poverty, discontent of working people, all those kinds of things. Uh, And, you know, it was a little too much fun sometimes. uh, (laughs) So I'll just say one more thing about that. It's not so much that they're seeing drunks in the city or, you know, feeling like they're losing out on the number of saloons. There's an alliance that's developed politically between, and they called it at the time Beacon Hill and the slums, Mm -hmm. um, between two groups who really didn't want prohibition of alcohol for different reasons, but they would have been maybe the upper class, more liberal, more Brahmin type, and um, Irish Catholics. And so when they join together to oppose license laws and various prohibition measures, evangelicals are beginning to see for the first time that, you know, this city that we thought was ours, that we owned, is not so much ours. And what you see developing, and this is kind of what I was pursuing in the book, and something, again, very similar to today, kind of a culture of resentment. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling resentful. And I'm looking for a reason why I'm feeling resentful about losing my place, about not being able to be sure that our group will have control in the future. So, a lot of the reaction, I think, to new religions, to Mary Baker Eddy, they're not in a mood where they're saying, uh, well, that's pretty interesting. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're feeling threatened from different sides.
0: Mm. So, who were some of these? leading evangelical voices of the time. And yeah. What were some of the major evangelical uh, figures, institutions?
1: You mean in Boston? In Boston, yeah. yeah. But if you think of evangelical churches at this time, I would think three. Park Street Church, mm-hmm. um, which was in a little bit of a decline at the time, but if people who know Boston... Uh, it's situated at one of the most prominent spots in the city by the common uh, and has a you know very visible tall spire. The other is just down the street, down Tremont Street from Park Street, and that's uh, Tremont Temple. Mm-hmm. And that was a very busy place in the late 19th century. It was really the largest indoor space in the city. So this is where all kinds of meetings were held. But it was also a very thriving congregation of immigrants, but immigrants from Canada, the Canadian Maritime. So, you know, they were Baptists, most of them. Mm -hmm. The third would have been A.J. Gordon,
0: the pastor Mm -hmm. of the Clarendon Street uh, Baptist Church. You brought up A.J. Gordon, and this is a figure of some significance in Christian science history, and specifically in the history of Mary Baker Eddy.
1: I think in terms of Christian science and, uh, you know, religious change, Gordon is really stirring the pot um, Mm -hmm. a lot more than probably a lot of people realize. He and his wife, I would give Mariah, his wife, a little bit of credit for that too. In
0: 1885, Gordon penned a a letter that was very uh, critical, um, and that would be Euphemistic to say, that, I think <laughs> of Mary Baker Eddy and Christian Science, which actually was read publicly at Tremont Temple, that you uh, the institution you just mentioned. Uh, it was read by a gentleman named Joseph Cook. Joseph Cook was a very popular and celebrated, as I understand it, uh, figure at, at that mm-hmm. point. He had a regular lecture series that was very well attended. Uh, it took place on, on Mondays. I'm going to read what A.J. Gordon had to say about uh, Christian science and Mary Baker Eddy. So, this is dated February 23, 1885, and it's written to the Reverend Joseph Cook, and it reads the following, um, quote, My dear sir, I believe Christian science to be of precisely the same lineage of spiritualism or theosophy, from beneath and not above. Indeed, Its similarity to that system of theosophy, which has wrought such mischief on both pagan and Christian minds in India, is very marked. By some occult process, it claims to do marvelous things in the bodies and souls of the patients. This fact, coupled with its professions of exalted holiness and self-abnegation, makes it a system calculated to deceive the very elect. But one has only to open the published volumes of its chief lady apostle in this city to find such a creed of pantheism and blasphemy as has been rarely compounded. No personal deity, no personal devil, no personal man, no forgiveness of sin, no such thing as sin to be forgiven, no sacrificial atonement, and no intercessory prayer are articles which will be found expounded at length in its confessions and expositions. And so far as I can learn, its ministry to the bodies and souls of the afflicted has for its end their conversion to this creed. Let Christians beware of the system. Signed, A.J. Gordon. So he's not mincing his words. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. (laughs) But what would be helpful to know is why is he so concerned about Mary Baker Eddy? The the religion is gaining adherence at, at this point, but... Why is it so much within his um, his focus?
1: I think it's pretty clear from this letter uh, and from, you know, we can talk about this, it's too similar to what he is preaching at times. And we need to unpack this a little bit. It's not like he could just point to it and say that's wrong and everybody would get it. Mm-hmm. But let's just talk about Gordon and uh, and his his theology and his teachings and kind of— where he stood in the late 19th century. He's an evangelical, but he's a particular type of evangelical of the time, very interested, very committed to the idea of personal holiness. Mm-hmm. Now, he was he was a Baptist. Uh, you know, Methodists have a, their kind of own set of holiness teachings, uh, a holiness movement. But there were many people, and you can imagine in this beleaguered time, who are really pursuing what they called the higher life, a Mm. life free from sin. The the language they're using, a life free from sin, a spirituality that emphasized self-abnegation, emptying yourself, letting God fill you, and also, of course, healing. Gordon wrote books on the ministry of healing. He and many others of these holiness kinds of Protestants believed that God still healed people, Mm -hmm. and the question was, how is that different from what Christian science is teaching? And if you weren't theologically trained, a lot of the language would have been similar. I think that's what really worried them, that people wouldn't be able to tell the difference and that they would lose people to this teaching. It got you further into the weeds of Christian theology that, that many lay people might not have been able to to negotiate, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, And, you know, when you read some of these contemporaries of Gordon, um, Luther Townsend and other people like that, they have to say, you know, I, we've done some research uh, and we can't deny that these people are healed. I mean, they don't want to deny that this is happening. Right. Um, because it had. Proof was really important, but how do you distinguish that theologically?
0: Well, Mary Baker Eddy, of course, would have to struggle with Christian science being misunderstood or conflated with some of the other Mm -hmm. uh, healing systems of the time. But it's interesting to me that she took this letter and this attack so seriously. She, um, requested that she have an opportunity to to respond to it and was given 10 minutes to to respond at a subsequent meeting of uh, one of uh, Cook's lectures series at Tremont Temple, and she spoke. And then she published a tract and then eventually republished it under the title uh, No and Yes, which is a very specific response to each one of Gordon's attacks in that letter to try and clarify what Christian science is, mm-hmm. why it's not spiritualism, why it's not theosophy, mm-hmm. how these core Christian ideas are still very present and significant and, um, and anchors to Christian mm-hmm. science. So that's something that's very important to her to do. And, you know, I'd just be curious your thoughts on why she chose that, that road. Her, her religion is gaining adherence. There, there is this whole sphere that you're talking about of liberal Boston, which is um, much more uh, receptive to her ideas, much more welcoming. Mm-hmm. But she chooses to go into the lion's den and face her adversary directly.
1: Yeah, I mean, we can, in some ways, this gets us back into thinking about Boston itself. Right and the passage that you read at the beginning of our conversation, that this is, in some ways, you think of, oh, Boston's so liberal, and they had theosophists and spiritualists and, you know, all those uh, new theology at Andover and Harvard, and and so sophisticated. That's true, but this is also, as we said before, a small city, a lot of contested territory. Um, There's a very kind of a tight crowded feel to religion and, you know, the significance of respectability. This is hard to be a religious innovator here, surprisingly somewhat. Mm-hmm. There's just not a lot of room. You have to walk a very careful line, I think, and you could easily, you know, just be kind of thrown out, oh, they're just with that crowd. Mm-hmm. She had to address you know, these, these are gatekeepers to um, respectability in some mm-hmm. ways um, and, you know, just being acknowledged in some ways. You, you can't ignore them. You, you can't it. go around them. I think you really have to address this.
0: A biographer of Mary Baker Eddy, Jillian Gill, really places this, this incident where Mary Baker Eddy goes to Tremont Temple and, and speaks to this as a very significant turning point for the Christian science movement that, you know, although the crowd at Tremont Temple was not supportive, it was uh, sometimes described as a hostile crowd, at least they were not sympathetic to her. Nonetheless, for the Christian science uh, community, it was, and, and these are Gillian Gill's words, quote, the Tremont Temple address proved her mettle to the public at large. So Eddie emerges as a public figure who can stand up for herself, stand up for her her beliefs. And so, in your book, you talk about how literally uh, Boston is a place um, where there are turf wars mm-hmm. for for religion. And so, in some ways, would you say that this was an opportunity for her to kind of stake a claim that that she belongs in this in this I turf? I think
1: so. And uh, you, as you were talking, I'm you know we also have to mentioned that she's female right um and that um, there is a long history of of women religious leaders who are n- not accepted by the mainstream so for a woman it's even more important I think to establish respectability if she had been a man I think it, it may have been easier for her to just go and create her own following, and do her own thing. But she's, again, walking another fine line of gender uh, in the late 19th century, which is another controversial subject yeah. uh, for people at the time.
0: This brings us to the close of part one of Mary Baker Eddy and Boston's Complex Religious History. We've been on this conversational journey with Peggy Bendroth, Executive Director of the Congregational Library and Archives. Dr. Bendroth is author of Fundamentalists in the City, Conflict and Division in Boston's Churches, 1885-1950. Please join us for Part 2 when I follow up with Dr. Bendroth to learn more about some of the figures and sites we were discussing in this episode. We'll delve more deeply and broadly into the life and work of Reverend A.J. Gordon through his ministry at Boston's Clarendon Street Baptist Church. We'll go inside the story of Boston's Tremont Temple to understand its fame as the stranger's Sabbath home, and we'll explore Mary Baker Eddy's interaction with some of Boston's liberal theologians of the late 19th century. Also, I just want to mention thank you to all who have answered our short three-question survey about seekers and scholars. It's been very helpful to get these responses. The survey is still up for anyone else who'd like to complete it. You can access it through a link in the episode details. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars.
1: This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2019.